You are about to listen to a sermon from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. We hope to see you in person. For more information, visit commongroundcma.org. Well, good morning, Common Ground Church. You are joining me today from the office. I'm hanging out here with Griffey because at the end of the week, this last week, I was exposed. So stay home just to keep you all safe. Um, But nonetheless, we are still continuing on in our series called Practices. We're in week four here. And in this series, we are looking at how following the way of Jesus is a way of life. How practicing our faith is key. And we're remembering that Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and who put it into practice. And James, Jesus' brother, said, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And I'm going to continue to quote those verses every single week so that some of us will have it memorized. Um, But basically, we're looking at all of these practices in our faith that we can continue to lean into in order to be connected to Jesus for the sake of others. And today, we're talking about a very fun topic, and that is generosity. (laughs) Now, the thing is... You know, I love that we're talking about this thing that makes people so uncomfortable, frankly, right? You know, I think anytime we talk about money in the church, it makes us all a little uncomfortable. There's like the, you know, the the trinity of uncomfortable topics in the church, right? Politics, sex, and money. And half the time, as soon as you start talking about money, everyone's going to say, oh, never mind. The other two didn't seem that bad. (laughs) But that's what we're leaning into today. Talking about generosity talking about, in a sense, money in our finances and practicing the way of Jesus with them. Now, the fact is, I think we have to acknowledge right from the very beginning that for about a thousand years or so, the church had a pretty bad stain of corruption um, on the church. You know, for a long time, holiness and forgiveness was even commoditized to the point that you could buy or purchase your holiness and forgiveness And because of that, and because of how even since then, um, the church has not always done a good job handling money themselves, we have to acknowledge that, that one of the reasons that we're so uncomfortable talking about this is because of the history that comes into this conversation, because of the legitimate ways that the church was bad with money and abused their power in those senses. But... Oftentimes, just because we avoid those conversations doesn't mean that we should, you know. Sometimes we get this bad taste in our mouth because we have been in situations or two churches where it seemed to us like all they cared about was getting our money. Or or maybe you're new here today and and you have this perception of the institutionalized church that all they ever want to talk about is money. And obviously, bad timing for you. I'm really sorry that's what we're talking about on your first week here. But... Nonetheless, even though I tend to shy away from the topic, and often it makes us uncomfortable and we try to avoid it, um, for the last few weeks I've felt pretty convicted about actually how little I talk about the topic of generosity and money. You know, I did the math this last week, and I've probably done about seven or 800 teachings in my career so far in ministry, and this will be my third time talking about money. Um, and part of me feels proud because then I'm not leaning into the corruption and into the, the bad distaste that so many of us have when talking about that. But at the same time, I do feel convicted for avoiding this very important topic. Because 
This really is a very important topic, and the Bible talks a lot about money and generosity. You see, the Bible mentions money more than 2,300 times. It is the second most common topic in all of Scripture, second only to idolatry, which is often a conversation about generosity. 16 of the 38 parables that Jesus taught deal directly with finances, although three more even deal with money indirectly, and so essentially you could argue that 19 out of 38 of Jesus' parables deal with money in some way. One out of six verses in Matthew and Luke relate to money and possessions. Jesus talked about money more than heaven and hell combined. The only thing Jesus talked about more than money was the kingdom of God. And he even used money to talk about the kingdom of God. One example. He said the kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a treasure in the field, and so he sold all he had to buy that field. Another time, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls, and so when he found one, he sold all he had to get that one fine pearl. There are three times more verses in the Bible about money and possessions than about love. Seven times more verses about money and possessions than about prayer. And eight times more than faith. So if you do the math there, there are more verses about money and possessions than prayer and faith combined. So this is a very important topic. This is a very important theme in Scripture, and this is something that God wants us to lean into when it comes to the practice of generosity. And I think the reason that the biblical writers and that God included so much on this topic in the Scriptures is because money and possessions and our practice of generosity is fundamentally connected to our spiritual lives. It is fundamentally connected to our walk of faith. And so, even though it's uncomfortable, it's not something that we can avoid. So as we look to being not just hearers of the word, but doers also, we must lean into the practice of generosity. And so, as we lean into this practice of generosity, we're going to really look at three different points, and three different ways of leaning into this. Now, the first point is that generosity is spiritual warfare. We're going to look at how generosity frees us from the grip of greed. The second is that generosity reminds us that we are stewards, not owners. And the third is that generosity points to Jesus himself. Now, the thing is, I kind of have two intros today, um, and neither of which are funny. I'm sorry that, you know, I'm not just telling jokes and giving you fun stories, but since I have to preach here from my home office... You know, you, you're going to get cranky Evan today. You're not going to get fun Evan that's telling stories. And so I have two intros that are more of like disclaimers um, today. Because as I've mentioned, you know, we have to address kind of the corruption of the church and the baggage that we bring into this conversation. Um, but also I just want to give the disclaimer that, you know, the reason we're leaning into the practice of generosity right now um, it's not because we plan on taking an offering at the end here or because giving is down in any way in our church or, you know, because we're facing an impending move in this church and we're going to need money for it. It's for none of those reasons. Giving is actually very good in this church right now. Uh, you are an amazingly generous community. Our finances are great and fine. And with our impending move, even though we're moving to a bigger space, um, actually, one of the main reasons that we're looking at this bigger space is that it has the potential to save us money. So it's not that we're trying to raise money for that or anything. We are just leaning into this because we see it as an incredibly critical aspect to following our faith. It's nothing because of trying to get people to give more or in a bad state financially. 
just want to give that disclaimer. And I want to remind us that even if this is something we're doing really well at, um, even if we are a very generous church, which we are, there's always room to improve. There's always room to excel. And so, as we look at this, you know, we want to be really transparent with our finances. We want to continue to be honest about it. And so I'm just going to read, you know, a short list um, of everybody that gives to this church and, and how much they've been giving. So we'll just start alphabetical here. Yeah, of course. Anyway, I'm sure nobody actually laughed at that. So I'm not filming it, but this is a very generous church. We're doing great financially, and I have heard so many stories, even just since we have gotten here, of the generosity in this community. I've heard stories of of people who who have given their own money and used their own time to cook and prepare meals for the, the poor and the needy. Um, I've heard stories of a couple in our church buying an extra car for someone that needed it in case they had car troubles in our church. I've heard stories of, of like a small group pitching in together to buy an oven for someone whose oven had broke. I heard stories of one of the church members here who was going on a mission trip and was raising funds and another couple in our church paid a huge majority of that trip to send them overseas of college students who have paid for hotel rooms for people in need or have helped pay for bus tickets or rehab or all of these different things or for students that should have been studying but gave their time to a friend that was in a hard season and they sat with them. And story after story, I hear the generosity and common ground and I praise God that this is something we have been leaning into. But we can continue to lean into it. We can continue to excel at this practice. And especially when we look at you know our future and as we are growing, continually you know growing in faith and as a church as we grow numerically and as a church as we grow even in age, I think generosity is something that we should continue to lean into now and that we want to, to really have down you know in preparation for the future. Um, the fact of the matter is that because of our current economic situation, um, because of our average age at Common Ground, most likely, and I hope this is true, this is probably the poorest any of us will ever be uh, for a while. You know, I hope that is true. Most people in here, if we just look at our average age, are either just beginning our careers or not yet started our careers. Now the thing is, we want to get the practice of generosity down now while we don't have a lot of money because when we do have a lot of money, it's not going to be any easier. Um, in fact, it's going to only be harder. So this is a practice that, that we want to make sure that we excel at now, that we bring into our lives as a regular rhythm, so that in the future, we are prepared to follow the way of Jesus when it comes to our money and our finances. And so with that, look at point one. Generosity as spiritual warfare. We're looking at how generosity frees us from the grip of greed. Now, the classic example of greed is, of course, the guy from the show DuckTales, right? Scrooge McDuck. I mean, we have to go to that classic example. Just about every episode in the show involves someone in some way trying to get his money, um, and they never would, and then at some point in the show, he would always end up swimming through his money um, and playing it. And it always looked so cool, and I always thought, you know, it would be awesome as a kid watching that, like thinking you could actually swim through money. But the reality is you can't swim in money. You will drown. 
The fact is that money has spiritual power and that money can actually be dangerous, that this grip of greed can get a hold of us. That money and possessions can quench the Holy Spirit in us and drown the life of God in us. And that money is not just an inanimate object, but actually has some spiritual power behind it. Behind it. And while we think maybe we can master it, the warning in Scripture is that we must be careful because it will master us. Now, the church talks about sin a lot, um, you know? And one of the most common ways, or one of the most common sins that the church talks about typically, or that you'll hear, is sexual sin. Um, and typically, when I, as a pastor, will say the word sin, most people's minds will immediately kind of go to sexual sin, that that's the most common one we think of. However, in the scriptures, the most common sin mentioned is greed, the sin of greed. That sin is more than just doing all these other things, but that sin is missing the mark for God's like, purpose for humanity. And with that, the scriptures have a lot to say about greed. Some would argue greed was the original sin. They put that argument out there. So shout out to Ray Straub, who always brings us back to Genesis. Because if we look at Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve in the garden, they had everything they could ever have wanted, but they still wanted that one thing that they couldn't have. And they wanted to still consume that. But it ended up consuming them. You see, greed is perhaps one of the most sneakiest sins of all. It's very sneaky and subtle. And the scriptures talk about greed and our, our need to beware of it, to stay away from it, to keep our eyes out for it, which is a very unique way of talking about sin. We don't talk about other sins as needing to watch out for it. You know, when, when Jesus talks about sexual sin, he says, flee from it. But when he talks about greed, he says, beware of it. And I think we know that, you know, when, when sexual sin is approaching, we can, we can see it. We know when it's about to happen. It's not like anyone just all of a sudden wakes up and says, oh no, you're not my wife. That doesn't happen. <laughs> but greed is sneakier than that. Greed is more subtle. We don't always know when greed is going to happen. Because before you know it, you could be moving on with life, you could be advancing in your career, you could just get a job for maybe the first time, and all of a sudden you could have more money coming in than you ever had before. And all of a sudden, greed can have a foothold, greed can have a grip on our lives. And as Christians, it can be easy to pass off greed as, I don't know, just having a backup plan for our backup plan, or just enjoying our life something like that. And greed has this sneaky way of having a grip on us. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now some translations, Matthew 6 here, they don't say the word money, but they leave the word mammon. Cannot serve both God and mammon. Now, mammon is the Aramaic word for the Syrian god of money, possessions, and riches. Jesus referred to mammon here because it is the personification of greed. He is pointing out that there is a spiritual thing, a power, a god, almost, in money. And it can become our master. One commentator wrote this. 
He said the word mammon is left in most translations today to remind the readers that mammon is a spiritual force who works with tremendous attracting power, drawing us into its orbit and out of the service of Christ. You see, mammon and money actually draw us away from Jesus. And so Jesus warns us to be aware of that, not to get near, not to get sucked into its orbit. And notice Jesus didn't say, you know, don't try to serve two masters, or you shouldn't try it because it's hard or it's difficult, you know, just don't waste your time. He didn't say that. He said you can't do it. He said it's impossible. You cannot serve these two masters. In doing so, you will turn your back on one. In doing so, you will leave one. And Jesus was pointing out that this mammon, this spiritual power that money has, is his rival. That the power is to turn us away from him. You know, just read the book of Ecclesiastes sometimes, and you'll see this theme played out over and over again. I love the book of Ecclesiastes. You should read it sometime this week. You see, it was written by King Solomon, and Solomon was one of the richest people to have ever lived on earth. Like, seriously rich. King Solomon makes Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos honestly look like peasants. He was way wealthier than either of them are. And one estimate found that Solomon would receive the equivalent to $40 billion each year as tribute. And one estimate is that his total net worth would be around $2.2 trillion in today's month. Way more than even Bezos has. So Solomon wrote this book, Ecclesiastes. And this is one of the main themes that he says over and over again in this book. He says that money has turned his heart from God. Since money and possessions are one of the primary ways that the enemy turns human hearts away from God, Ammon is Jesus' rival, and practicing generosity and breaking us free from that grip of greed is spiritual warfare. See, in 1 Timothy, Paul wrote to Timothy that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and that a lot of people in pursuit of money have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. Essentially, people were following Jesus, and then they were after getting rich and they wandered away from the faith. See, generosity breaks us out of this chain. Generosity is spiritual warfare against the power of man, and practicing generosity frees us from greed's grip. So a reflection question for you guys today, as you ponder how you can lean into the practice of generosity, and ask yourself this, how does greed have a grip on my life? And continue to process that this week. And see that generosity is spiritual order. Second point here, generosity reminds us that we are stewards, not owners. Stewards, not owners. Okay, here's something that, as a pastor, I'm not actually supposed to say. Um, this is something that's pretty uncouth for a pastor to say, right? Here it is. Tithing is not a command in the scriptures. That Christians don't actually have to tithe. I just said, this is usually the moment, like some other pastor from in town will jump in and call me a false prophet or something, right? But it's true. Tithing is not a command in the New Testament. I know we're not supposed to say that, but if we look at the scriptures, it's true. Let me explain that a bit. Okay, so the tithe, a tithe literally means a tenth. 
one tenth. Because the tithe was given to the Israelites in the law of Moses, requiring them to give 10% of what they owned or produced or farmed, 10% of their first fruits, to God, to the needy, and to support the temple and the priests. And God made this as a law in the book of Moses, in their culture there. He also instituted this the whole idea of gleaning, if you're familiar with gleaning, right? Where you would leave the edges of the field there, and you would leave that for the poor and the needy. However, for the follower of Jesus in the New Testament, the tithe is not taught as a rule. This 10% number, this tenth, uh, oftentimes we see it as a rule, but it's not. Instead, the New Testament teaches generosity. The thing with generosity is that while we often look at the tithe as this 10% rule that, you know, all of my money is mine, but I should give 10% to God and keep 90 for the rest, we end up thinking, well, that's a pretty big deal. I only have to give 10% to God. However, that 10% is supposed to be the floor and not the ceiling with a New Testament Christian. That generosity means we don't just stop at a 10%. That we don't just say, okay, we'll give 10% to those in need or the church. When we look at the book of Acts or the New Testament, people were giving like 40 to 60%. And we don't practice gleaning where we just leave the edges of the field there for the poor and the needy. In the New Testament, people were selling their fields and giving all of that to the poor and the needy. Okay? And the problem with focusing solely on that 10%, like I said, is that then we think, well, that other 90% is ours. Whereas the scriptures teach all 100% is God. That we are not actually owners of this that we are stewards of what God has given us. We're just the money managers. That God has entrusted whatever we have to us to manage for his purposes. Okay, We haven't earned anything. Everything we have is from him. We haven't earned it. Some of us would say, well, no, I think I've earned it. Okay, well, here's how you've earned it. You've earned it on borrowed air that God has given us. We've earned it with a brain that God wired for us. We've earned it with borrowed hands that were made for us. We've earned it with the grace of God that put us in the place where we could be. And the fact that God allowed us to be born in a time and a place where what we do for a living actually has monetary value. Think about you electrical engineers or you computer engineers. It's a good thing that you live in a time when electricity and computers exist, right? We can thank God that we live in a time where what we do actually has value. Because it could have been very possible that we did All of this is from God. Now we have to remember that we are stewards and not owners. And see, a steward, by this definition, a steward is someone entrusted with another's wealth or property and charged with the responsibility of managing it in the owner's best interest. So it's our job to figure out what God wants done with his money and how it can benefit him. How it can benefit him as, as stewards. Now, Randy Alcorn, in his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, he told the story of, of John Wesley, who, if you've heard of, he's a huge name in, in Western Christian history. He was a big 
uh, founder of the Methodist movement. He wrote a lot of hymns that we continue to sing today. And Randy Alcorn told the story of when John Wesley was told that his house burned down. After hearing the news, Wesley replied, No, the Lord's house burned to the ground. That means one less responsibility for me. <laughs> See, Randy Alcorn, he comments on this when he writes, This wasn't the sanctimonious reply of someone who thought I'd be quoting his words a hundred years later. We might say, get real. But his reaction didn't stem from a denial of reality. Rather, it sprung from life's most basic reality, that God is the owner of all things, and we are simply his stewards. We are stewards, not the owners. And as we practice generosity, it reminds us of our role as stewards. So reflection question here on this point. Really think into this process. How does being a steward affect your practice of generosity? How would being a steward affect the way you handle your money, your possessions, your time as a steward, not an owner? Third point here. Final one. That generosity points to Jesus himself. Okay, when we practice generosity in our actions, we preach the gospel. Uh, we know that preaching the gospel it's about show and tell, right? Show and tell. We tell the words of scripture, we tell the, the good news of the gospel with our words, but we also show it with our actions. We live it out. We practice it by proclaiming with our actions that we are followers of Jesus and by repeating the pattern that he set for us. And the example of Jesus, in terms of generosity, is that Jesus was rich, but became poor so that we could be rich. Paul says, now as Christ followers, we follow the path. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 and 14. Go ahead and turn there. I'll give you a bit of time. It will also be on the screen. If you hadn't noticed, just like I said, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about money, possessions, and generosity, and so I couldn't help myself. We're going to go to a bunch of different scriptures today. But 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Before we read this... Um, one of the things that we have to look at when we look at the Corinthian church is that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church a lot about generosity. If you ever think of who the Corinthians were, they were a lot of pretty well-off people. Uh, Corinth was a port city. It was a happening place. We know that they met in the yards or of mansions or they met in mansions there. And we know that a lot of the issues Paul addressed um, in First and Second Corinthians were issues that only the wealthiest of society at that time would have actually faced. That often he was writing um, about these issues that your common person wouldn't have actually face them, or, or that the poor would not have actually faced. And one of the things Paul was trying to constantly get them to figure out was the practice of generosity, getting them to lean into being generous. So 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, verse 9-14. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now, finish doing it well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, 
but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, and that there may be fairness. Okay, see, Paul, Paul says the motivation for generosity is Jesus' generosity towards us. That because of what Jesus did to us, for us, that we are moved to practice generosity. Now there's a whole, you know, fringe group of Christianity that looks at this verse and says, well, see right there, Jesus became poor so that we could be rich, and now we just get to be rich. Well, the fact is we are Jesus' followers, and so we follow the pattern that Jesus laid. So then we give of our money for others, and we follow Jesus' pattern. We try to bless others out of the riches that we have. And we remember that practicing generosity is a display of Christ and what he did for us. And in this way, we point towards Jesus. You see, Jesus' life was the ultimate act of generosity. He gave up a lot just to show us how to live. And then he won up that even with his death. You know, Jesus sat at the right hand of God in heaven in perfection and glory at a place of honor. Then he gave that up to come here to earth as a baby. Then he worked as a carpenter. Then he was a Jewish man in the first century who, even though he might have been middle class in his day, we would look at today as still, compared to the different times that people have lived in, compared to us, he's dangerously poor. And then... When he entered the ministry, he traveled around essentially couch surfing with his friends, and he gave up a lot just to teach us how to live. And, of course, he died for us. He gave us his whole life as a payment. Is that money analogy? As a payment for a debt that we owe. A payment we could never have paid, but he took it upon himself. He knew that we wouldn't make good financial decisions, so to speak, and so he wrote a blank check and said, whatever they owe, whatever debt they are ever going to rack up, I will pay it all. I will give it all. He gave it all for us. And every time that we practice generosity, we point to that payment that he has made for us. We point to Jesus who gave us everything. We point to him generosity. Another scripture we can look at, uh, Deuteronomy 24, verse 19. Uh, don't worry about don't worry about turning there. Uh, we'll have it on the screen here, but when you are harvesting your field and you overlook a sheaf, and this is Deuteronomy chapter 24, when you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. So look at verse 22 there. That last sentence. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. God was calling them in generosity to remember their slavery. See, we just did a series in Exodus. Do you remember that? God is saying, remember what happened in those events. 
Remember that you had nothing. You had no possessions. Literally, you had so little, you were someone else's possession. And you had no way out, but I rescued you. And then you came up to a dead end, but I made a way for you. And then you were wandering in the wilderness, and I guided you. And then you had no food and water, and I provided for you. Remember all that I have done for you, and that is why I command you to be generous. Because of all that I have done for you. And in every act of generosity, you point to what I did for you. And you point to what I have given provided for you. So generosity, when we practice giving to those in need, when we practice supporting God's mission, generosity points to Jesus and what he has done for us and given for us. One day Jesus had dinner with a rich man named Zacchaeus. And during Jesus' time with Zacchaeus, something changed in Zacchaeus' heart. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. You've been converted, Jesus said. Jesus looks at this guy and he sees a life that has been changed. And that change is evident in Zacchaeus' generosity. That change is evident in that Zacchaeus changed the way he handled his money and his finances. That his wallet was converted. So generosity here is a sign of a changed life. And so for us, generosity is that sign. It points to Jesus for what he has done. And this is the way that, as Jesus followers, we are called to practice generosity. And so the reflection question I have for you um, at this point is how can you use generosity to point to Jesus, to point for what he's done for you? You know, Just imagine what our community would look like if we all leaned into the practice of generosity. Just imagine... What would happen if all of us were freed from the grip of greed? Um, just imagine what it would look like for all of us to act as stewards, not owners, or if we were constantly pointing towards Jesus with our generosity. So as we go this week, would you look into how you can practice generosity? Maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a friend, a relative, maybe it's someone you don't even know. Um, maybe you've never you know, been generous to the church before. Maybe you've never helped a friend before like that. Or maybe you have some extra time that you could give. Would you process how Jesus might be calling you to release the grip of greed on your life? To act as a steward, not as an owner. And to point to Jesus through your acts of generosity. So with that, let's pray. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. Please join us again at Common Ground Church.